Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I text my coach saying this was when I was due to do Liège, my Liège best on Liège under 23 is my first race of the year and I was like oh, awesome I, I've got five weeks till this I can uh, get down to a really lightweight and I got a phone call about two minutes later and got an absolute bollocking he was like no like stop thinking about weight you're still 20 if you start sacrificing weight now and going all in you're going to stunt your growth your performance your development it's the basic it was don't be an idiot Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast, supported by Cycling Weekly. I'm Michael Hutchinson, often known as Dr. Hutch, and I'm a former pro cyclist and a national time trial champion. This time, I'm talking to British under-23 rider Joe Laverick. I'm talking to Joe because I want to hear about what it takes to make it from that crowded, ambitious under-23 category into the professional ranks. Joe's currently based in Girona, along with more or less every other bike racer in the world, and he rides for the Hagen's Berman Axion team. That's the outfit founded by Axel Merckx, and it's probably the most successful rider development team in the world. As well as the dangers of obsessing over body weight that you've already heard about, we talked about lifestyle. I, I very much believe nobody's perfect, but if you kind of live on the whole 80%, 20% balance, or 85-15, whatever, within 85% you eat well and you live well, 15% you have a life. That's a good a good way of, again, staying sane. We talked about time trial technology and the price of going faster. I'm on arguably the, one of the top three fastest bikes in the world, but I haven't been wind tunnel tested. And I know in my head I'm giving watts away, but the only other way of doing it is kind of investing 800 pounds, whatever. And we might have two TTs in a year. That could be like for 30Ks worth of time trialing. And it's just balancing that up. Like if I was World Tour, I'd do it. But at the minute, I just can't afford it. And that, it kind of frustrates me. Well, it does frustrate me a lot. And Alex Dyson from the Israel Startup Nation team, who's an alumnus of the Axion team, joined in to tell me about what World Tour teams are looking for in new riders these days. Right now in World Tour teams, children are fashionable. Like every team wants the next 14 year old that can do seven watts per kilo for 20 minutes. The reason I wanted to talk to you, Joe, I mean, I've, I've talked to a few people for this, uh, this podcast. And the thing that interests me is that you're at the other end of your career from a lot of the guys I have to. I, mean, I've, um, I think the last big road rider I talked to was Steve Cummings, um, who retired a couple of years ago. If you talk to Steve, it's very much, Steve, tell me about those tour stages you want. How did you do that? 
you're at a kind of a kind of at a key point as a developing writer in that you're just at that point where you're transitioning from being kind of a junior into first couple of years senior to looking for um a pro contract it's that kind of stepping stone so while part of what all this is about is what you've already done and, and how you achieve that i think it's at least as much about where you're going next and and, and how you get there so the kind of the job interview question um maybe is appropriate which is where do you see yourself in five or six years where, where, where are you going where are you heading in five or six years i'd be 25 26 um which at the minute in cycling is quite old isn't it when you look at the car and all the guys are winning at the minute um like personally i'd see myself in the world tour um i know i'm not like physically i know i'm not a vanderpoel or a remco or whatever um but there's still jobs in the world tour to be done and there's still those guys who you just mentioned steve he was he was never the most talented rider in the peloton but um and i'm sure he won't mind me saying that um but he still managed to use his brain to do a job and get some ridiculous stage wins um it's like that stage when i can't remember what year of the tour it was but when he uh kind of outfoxed both Pino and Bardet. Oh, that was 2015. That was the airfield at Mende, yeah. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, and it's it's guys like that, or things like you see Dallas at Giro stage last year. Again, Alex will say himself, he, he wasn't the strongest rider in that Giro. Um, but there's always opportunities. And um, yeah, the World Tour is the, is the ultimate goal. I've got two more years under 23. Um, I feel I'm in a pretty good position at the team I'm at with the calendar we've got. Even for a rider with talent, focus and motivation, getting from the under-23 category to that first World Tour contract is very hard. And if anything, it's getting harder because what the World Tour teams want seems to be changing. I thought it might be useful to get some context from Alex Dowsett, who used to ride for the team Joe's in now. Alex has been a World Tour rider for a decade now, with stage wins at the Giro d'Italia and almost as many national time trial titles as me. I asked him about what the teams are looking for and what they base their signing decisions on. The reason for the such heavy focus on numbers is the lack of racing for under 23s. Like, there's, if we think we were hard done by in the pro ranks last year with the lack of racing, it was far, far worse for every level underneath uh, the world tour. What did the under 23s and the youngsters have? They they resorted to simple power outputs, and that's. Like that's all they had and sort of alongside that team suddenly because there is all this data and and like data is uh it's very it's very black and white so when joe won the ghs i i got in touch and i think joe was the first rider since myself to win it as in not in the oldest category the one year below so we started talking and i was like if you need any help uh, let me know and subsequently worked with Joe since then for the last kind of five or six years as a as a mentor I guess sometimes a coach but mostly a mentor I remember Joe coming into his like first or second year under 23 he's like I've got to get a pro contract I've got to get like there was so much pressure I was like Joe it took me four years in the under 23s to get a pro contract and that was fine but like now it has changed and teams are picking up Remco has set a dangerous precedent where teams think there's going to be a Remco every single year and they'll just pluck them straight out of juniors and they'll go and win every straight stage race they enter but that's it's just not the case and teams I think are looking at data to support their 
argument for this. And I heard a wicked story recently where a team tested out a junior who posted some mind-blowing numbers, signed him up for three years on some obscene contract, and then realized the power meter was overreading. So as in, what kind of rider are you heading towards being? I mean, I, I'll admit I kind of tend to think of you a bit as a time trialist, which maybe yeah. isn't quite fair since time trial specialism is a, you know, it's quite a narrow specialism. Maybe you're looking at something broader than that. So coming through the junior ranks, um, without that, I was a time trialist, but I grew up on the British club scene. My first ever race was a nine point something mile TT, uh, the Fonaby one lap in Lincolnshire. Yes, um, yeah, I approve of that. I, it was it's one of those courses i think i did like a long 27 on it um and thought it was really good and now i've got the course record of like i don't know maybe a short 18 or something um so we've got progress um but it's, yeah. it's, it's, i mean it's, it's really nice to be able to see things like that it's one of the nice things about having some sort of a time trial background is that particularly coming through as a as a junior when you're growing up you can you can see yourself making progress every month it is, it is quite nice um, but sorry, I'm 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 distracting yeah. you. You're... Oh, I I can go all day on time trialing. Um, just like my local club ten, I did a nineteen dead on it two years ago. I haven't been back since, um, and it killed me. That I didn't do an eighteen fifty nine. But um, anyway, I digress. Yeah, where um, where where are you where are you going next? We we'll, we'll do kind of a, yeah. we'll do a whole time trialing appendix at the end of it as a sort of a, a, a nerd special. Um, but yeah, so I won I won a few races on the continent as a junior. Um, like my kind of party line is actually rolled Remco Vampol in a TT at juniors um won a UCI TT and then went to Wales and top 10 there um so I was very much seen as this time trialist um in fact I think I don't know if I still do but I did have the fastest ever 10 mile TT time as a junior as a 16 year old sorry I um, don't know if I do. It doesn't really matter. I'm, yeah. I'm not nerd enough to know off the top of my head. Sorry. Long and short of it, I was always seen as a time trialist. Um, and then I went on to Madison, and we didn't really have that many time trials in the calendar. And then the same last year on Aji Desert, and I kind of realized, given my physiology, I'm 66, 65 kilos, depending on where I am in season. If you want to be an out-and-out -out TT specialist, most of the guys are a lot heavier. Look at Ghana. He's in the 80s. Um and I'm not saying I can't do a good time trial because I can, but I don't want to put myself in that box as a specialist. That's, that's so. fair enough. So you're kind of looking at heading towards the classics or world of GC or humble, humble water carrier? <laughs> All of the above. Uh, no, that's people's first assumption. <laughs> when they say you're a time trialist and you don't want to do that as much anymore, it's like, oh, you go do the classics then. And to be fair, I see myself in kind of like the media mountains. That's where I think I go best. Um, not out and out watts per kilo efforts um i'm never going to win a competition against someone who's 55 kilos but those kind of breakaway days and i can do a job in the mountains for the team um, i'm not going to win the tour but i can win a stage kind of thing yeah so do you know i think for me talking to you joe i think the biggest the biggest single question i've got is how you reconcile you know you know where you're going you know where you're trying to get to is how you reconcile your kind of long-term development as you know looking down to the next five six years how you reconcile that with your short-term development because you've got kind of long-term targets but you've also got some pretty harsh short-term targets in terms of getting a contract getting the next step up the ladder and that those aren't always going to pull in the same direction um so how do you reconcile those um 
So yeah, the, the short term, well, there's obviously so many targets. The short term is in next two years, that's get a pro deal. Um, it's no secret when you come out of under 23s that it's, it's not impossible to go pro, but it's very, very, very difficult. Um, it's like Matt Holmes, who was my teammate on Madison Genesis. I think he was 25 when he went pro uh, with Lotto, and that was seen as very late. Um, so short to midterm, it's just it's all about getting that contract and how you do that. Um, and it's just it's doing a job in those races. So my first race this year, my first race block is in Portugal. Um, and for me, at Volta Algarve, which is a point pro, I'm not going to win that on GC. It's just it's a fact I'm not. I think looking at the, the past winners, uh, Grant Thomas has won it, Kwiatkowski. Um, the last five or six years just is like a who's who of Tour de France winners. Um, but if I can get in a break or nick a jersey one day, then that's the sort of thing which a team will go, oh, look, he can do this. The under-23 category is about more than just attracting the attention of World Tour team directors. When I talked to Alex Dyson, he made a really important point about its role in developing riders. Like when I was younger, every team had a Colombian. Like the Colombians were the overpriced Colombians were the next big thing. Um, like, you know, Quintana and had set like Quintana was the Remco of that generation, where suddenly every team was scrambling around for a Colombian. And now uh, the same thing I feel has happened, but it's for um, kids straight out of juniors. But I, I think under 23 is not doing that racing is is dangerous because that's kind of what crafts you as a racer. And there are some cases of some guys having all the numbers in the world, but cannot string together a bike ra- a real world bike race. Let's put it this way, Joe. If you'd got a contract now, if someone had come on come on board, and as it happens occasionally, and said, "Right, we're, we're not going to sign you now, but we 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 will sign you next year. We'll sign you onto a kind of three year contract." If you looked down the year and said, "Right, I've got the next four years is secure. I don't need to worry about becoming pro. Don't need to worry about making a living." Would what you do in terms of training, in terms of how you're trying to condition yourself, would that be different from how it's going to be this year, where you feel you've got a much smaller window to make an impression? Uh, no, I don't think it would, be, um, because the thing is, at the minute, uh, as an under twenty-three, if you want to go pro, you've already got to live the pro lifestyle. Um, it, like the level's so high. So my training at the minute is kind of prepping for those five, six-hour races, which I haven't had in the past, and that'd be the same if I was to sign this hypothetical deal. Um, odd things might change, but um, I think as a whole, if you're not already living a pretty professional lifestyle if you're going to call it that um you've got no chance because the level as an under 23 is so high um we've got guys like my teammates myself living almost a world tour lifestyle already just without the paycheck i mean one of the things that i did wonder about is you you've written a little bit about weight as a a body weight as a sort of as a a, a thing cycling has problems with and you know, I wonder if that's something that filters down more, becomes an even more pressured issue at under under twenty under twenty three level, um, because it's such a punch up to get get to the next. I mean, I know the old Jimmy Michon Yates telling me that when he signed for um, his first French development team, the first meeting he was given two jerseys, two pairs of shorts. Said the guy said, "Lose five kilos, never attack into a headwind." 
the next guy came along and he got two jerseys, two pairs of shorts, was told to lose five kilos and never to attack into a headwind. And that was the entire kind of performance advice from the team. Lose five kilos, don't attack into a headwind. And I, you know, cycling, I think World Tour still has quite a lot of that, particularly Italian teams, maybe Spanish teams. Um, is that drive all the way down to under 23? I would worry that under 23, it might be even worse because you're dealing with a kind of a much more feral environment. Um, it depends where, um, as you as you touched on. So I was in France last year with the Agi Desert Devo squad, um, and I was told I could lose a figure which equated to just I could lose a figure which equated to just below ten percent of my body mass, um, and have the same time trial ability, which common sense just says no. Um, and I saw guys on that team last year. Um, get very light, very, very light. But then an injury came across three weeks later. So they were flying for three weeks, but then they couldn't race for a month. Um, and I'm not saying that they were directly related, but I mean, you presume, presume there's something to do with it. Um, I think it depends. So on Axion, the team aren't, aren't pressurizing you um, at all. So I work with like my own nutritionist in the background um, and I'm not perfect. Like writing that article for Cycling Weekly, um, it hit home like a, f- a fair few things I was writing of like how not to do it. I was like, this is I've done this, and I still do this. Like at the minute, I'm I'm not trying to lose loads of kilos, but say I've got Algarve in a month, um, I-, I need to be at race weight. And I think with any elite athlete in any elite sport, there's going to there's got to be some sort of disordered behaviour. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to make it. It's like it's not normal to sit in your garage on a TT bike for three hours staring at a wall, um, but we still do. Yeah, it. I, I, I think there's something. I don't quite actually. Well, actually, I will say I sort of. I think there's something, almost something wrong with any elite athlete. Um, and I said that to um, a sports psychologist I know, and she said yes. But what's interesting is how some of them deal with that better than others. You almost take it as read that if someone is an elite athlete has got a defect of some sort that makes them like that, but it's how they then cope with it from then on in. Yeah, and I think the thing is in under 23s is um, we're a lot more impressionable. Um, so if if a World Tour DS said to me, yeah, I'll sign you, um, but I expect when you turn up on January the 1st, you're four kilos lighter, um, I'm going to lose those four kilos because a World Tour DS who I'm trying to impress has said that. Um, you just almost got to cross your fingers and hope that the people who you're working under have an understanding and a respect because, I mean, there are times where you've got to lose weight. I mean, it's part and parcel of the job. What's the kilo makes you go fast uphill? Um, but then there's that finding that fine balance and you just hope that you're dealing with someone who understands that what's are just important as like a low kilo. So it's, yeah. it's just hoping and it's so different between different teams no i mean it's it's it has been like that kind of since forever but mm. i think i mean from what i from what i see i think it has got better but you know like you say in the end of the day it's a it's a performance sport and the big the big sort the big sort outs get made going up hills for the most part and um and weight is part of that um, yeah exactly i um i got a phone call i text my coach saying this was when I was due to do Liège, my Liège best on Liège under 23 is my first race of the year. And I was like, oh, awesome. I, I've got five weeks till this. I can uh, get down to a really lightweight. And I got a phone call about two minutes later and got an absolute bollocking. Um, he was like, no, like 
stop thinking about weight. You're still 20. If you start sacrificing weight now and going all in, you're going to stunt your growth, your performance, your development. It's the basic, it was don't be an idiot. Um, and having someone like that on your shoulder is good because if I'd have had an old school coach, it could have been like, oh yeah, great idea. For riders in their late teens and early 20s, the balance between body weight, training load, recovery, and still hitting those critical performance targets is a very, very delicate one. I asked Joe about his current priorities. I don't have, or I haven't had in the past, many five plus hour races. And I need to be good at kind of, I can do good power fresh and I can do good power fatigue now. But at the start of winter, my fatigue resistance wasn't as high. Um, and for me, I go really well off big hours. Um, so that's all basically what I'm doing at the minute. I think I've got six hours tomorrow, then a rest day, and then another six hour ride. Yeah, I looked, I looked at your Strava as a as part of my preparation for, for chatting to you. I noticed, yeah, the last few weeks you've done, there's been kind of 23, 24, 25 hour weeks in there, which is kind of, it's kind of world tour training mileage, isn't it? Yeah, again, you've got to do, you've got to do it. And if, like, it's interesting if uh, this, I changed coach this winter. And if you look at my seven day blocks, they're not all big. But, um, like, as I'm kind, basically a full time bike rider, um, I don't work in Monday to Sunday kind of blocks. And that's another thing my coach has got me into thinking because I, like everyone, go on Strava and I think, oh, I've done 23 hours this week. Um, but my seven day thing could be 30. Um, and it's just little things like that I've got to wrap my head around. Um, but yeah, it's endurance. I go well off the endurance box, so why wouldn't I do it? Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, one of the things that, um, I mean, my, my, my career is not kind of a typical career of a world pro, world tour pro and that I was kind of a British domestic pro who specialized in time trialing and came to it late. So it, it, these things don't necessarily transfer across. But one of the things I would change if I was going back to start it all again is that I'd be much more cautious about increasing training load. This is because the thing is, every time you increase the training load, you get a little bit of a gain from it. So when you move from doing 16 hours a week to 18 hours a week, you get a little bit of a gain. Um, and my kind of thinking about, about it now was that if you went from 16 hours to 18 hours a week, you get a gain. Then you go to 18 hours to 20 hours and you get another gain. But I worried if you go from 16 hours to 20 hours, you don't get both of those gains. You get, you get less than that. And I know I wonder a little bit what your take on this issue, whether that's just blunting the training response by ramping things up really quickly. I appreciate you come at it from the other end because you've got five hour day, five hour race days coming up where you need to be ready for that. But again, this is part of a rider development question, really, and you're in the middle of it, and it's it's not always easy. Well, I'm third year under 23 now. Um, so, I, and as I said, guys like Pojokar, they're winning the tour, and they're two years older than me. Um, I feel I was lucky in a way that my first year under 23, I was still doing A-levels because of how my birthday falls. Um, so that actually almost stunted the amount of training I could do in a week because I was in school pretty much full time. I mean, I got a bit of leeway. Um, in fact, I had really bad attendance in my final year. Um, but training load, it was nowhere near what I was doing now. Um, and then last year in France, I kind of added decent training. Um, but I feel because I was still in school as a first year, I've had to lay back. Um, whereas there's guys now who are full-time cyclists as juniors and doing 20, 25 hour weeks. And I, I completely agree with you. If you're doing 20, 25 hour weeks at age 17 as a second year junior, where do you go when you're 
under 23 or world tour like you've already reached your ceiling you can't do 35 hour weeks yeah because i i i ramped things up really really quickly to 25 30 hours a week and that's that's all the time there is you can't do more than that um and i i, I worry a little that worry is too strong because it's not my problem but you know i i would be concerned if i were coaching someone as a junior or even kind of as a, an 18 19 year old who was immediately rampant and it's very tempting to do it because that's what the pros do and that's what you want to do and you will get a gain from it but it's it's where you go next and it's also does it produce injury problems does it produce weight problems mm-hmm. i think at my age now i mean i know i'm young as as opposed to like the world as a whole but as my cycling age i think i'm i'm almost that borderline pro age so say this time next year or this time in two years i could have a world tour deal for example um and if you you can't just completely go up or you won't be at the level um but i i'm very much with you on the fact that junior riders doing 20 plus hour weeks is absolutely absurd like i don't see i i i believe you should get gcses and a levels and then go on cycling um because university i didn't go to uni um, I'm not at uni, and I feel I can. I've got the A-level results. I can go back, but if I went, um, if I went full-time cycling after my GCSEs, it's like I've got nothing to fall back on. I think teams nowadays are much better equipped to uh, support, like support riders that come straight in without the prior um, experience of of how to be a bike rider. I know, like the contrast between my time at Movistar where it really was like here's your race program turn up fit and kind of leave you to it and I, I think things have changed there now but that was certainly the case back then whereas like teams like Jumbo Visma and Sky they have all the necessary protocols and support in place to support these youngsters the, the fear in my mind or the the issue is the fact that the, the, what I did as an under 23 that making mistakes learning how to be a bike rider has now been shifted to junior level and that's then going to affect these kids education because they're like well if I want to turn pro when I turn 18 I need to not be doing school because that's not, that's not going to help me um, so I think that that could be a negative knock-on effect um, and, and maybe just taking the fun out of it. I, I wonder if we'll see, because starting the careers early, 34, I mean, maybe 34, 35, which is when on average a, a pro ends his career. Is that then going to shift to 31, 32? Maybe out of choice of the cyclist, but actually the choice of the team, just going, like, you're too old. So it must be quite difficult to figure out what, whether it's improvement because you're doing more training or you're doing different training, or if you hadn't changed anything at all, would you just have got better through just getting a bit older, the hormones changing, muscles maturing? Yeah, I have this conversation a lot with my friends, um, like my friends similar age in the sport, because we all do similar, but this, this is really contradictory, but similar, but very different training. I mean, that okay. makes no yeah, sense. Talk, 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 yeah, you're going to have to talk me through this. Um, so we all do similar amount of hours, um, like kind of have a similar lifestyle. But what we do in those hours can be quite different or we do them in different uh, training periods, whatever. But we all end up as much of a muchness as we were when we were juniors. 
Um, like obviously we kick on a little bit more and we're now racing at higher level. But so there's two other guys I'm thinking of that I race with at juniors. We're all kind of about the same ability in comparison to each other as we were when we were 17, 18, so three or four years ago. But we've all had very different coaches. We've been on very different teams the last few years. Um, and it is, I don't know, it's strange how you can do something so different but still be at a good level. And living in France last year with the Agile Desert Devo squad was another good example of that because that the coaching there was different. Um, and we did, that's, an, that's a, my politically correct way of putting it. Um, French coaching, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did cross-country skiing in the winter, for example. And I mean, my numbers now are better than last year, but those guys who on the Agile Desert Evo squad, they're still bloody good bike racers. But mm. you, you wouldn't say cross-country skiing is necessarily the best. I mean, it has some transferable skill, not skill. It's very some traditional. Benefits. But yeah, it's traditional. Mm. And it's like in a very science-driven sport, you think, oh, we just ride our bikes because we're cyclists. Um, but no, it's interesting. because I think the biggest difference last year to this year and this sounds really cliche and I hate it, but it's true, is you ride well when you're happy. Um, and last year I struggled quite a lot with the whole living abroad in a in a town where there's like three English speakers. Um, and just I felt very much, not immature, that's the wrong word, but it's almost, I suppose it's almost like last year I was a child and now I've grown up. Um, and the difference in my happiness level, whatever you break that off, between last year and this year is so different and I'm riding so much better this year. Um, and I mean, how do you measure that? That's kind of a, a rhetorical question, but yeah. it, I feel there's a lot or there's a lot to be said for being a happy bike rider um, and going well. What I say to a lot of youngsters is go to a country that suits you to race. Like if you're a, if you're not a climber don't go to Italy if you're a sprinter don't go to Italy go to Belgium if you're a big guy go to Belgium if you can accelerate if you're somewhere in the middle go to France I went well I went to Italy first and that was a shock to the system but then I say that Italy possibly certainly under Rod Ellingworth Italy was one of the best things that ever happened to me mainly because of Rod Rod taught me how to be a bike rider and the problem was Italy really showed my uh, weakness at climbing and but I made the mistakes I lost far too much weight in an effort to be good in Italy and I guess when I when I did eventually go to America I realized when I got there how much of a complete bike rider I was and America was suddenly very well suited well not just our American our America race program but also the races we did in Europe, they saw that we were a bunch of big guys, you know, Taylor Finney, you know, Jesse Surgeon, myself. We were we were fast and we were big. So they took us to Holland and Belgium and uh, flatter races. Whereas now, like, I think when they had the likes of Teo and Ruben Guerrero, they went and did Valle d'Osta and Tour d'Alsace and these much hillier races. So that team was crucial in putting us in the right races to then turn pro from which is which is what i think axiom bergman's does very well i do a little bit of coaching here and there with with one or two riders not really as a, a major not as a commercial operation really um 
but on training peaks you're saying one of the key metrics is the little smiley face you get on training peaks that says just how you're feeling and they they perceived exertion number that says how did it feel and you get riders who don't want who, who don't bother filling that in because it doesn't seem as important as the watts and the heart rate and the speed and the hours and the and the climbing and the speed of climbing but actually if you kind of take those numbers and track them the correlation between how somebody's feeling just in terms of themselves generally not just not just physically um on how well they go is is as you say it's very very close and it's it's not just i feel it's having a life as well like there's almost a part of cycling where you're celebrated if you come home you train and just sit on the sofa all day and it's like yeah that is the best recovery method but after like we finish chatting now i'm gonna go for a walk around old town just because if not, I've got five hours before I go to bed of just sitting down watching Netflix. And I've had that the last couple of hours before before speaking to you. And, well, some old school coaches might go, oh, well, you'll affect your six-hour ride tomorrow by going for a 45-minute walk. And it's like, well, maybe like 0.1%, but at the same time, I'll be a lot happier because I haven't spent five hours just sitting inside doing nothing. I mean, I live in a beautiful place, um, but you can still feel very cooped up in your apartment. So, I mean, why wouldn't I go walk around the old town? Is your, do you get coaching from the team? No, well, we're, I'm coached by James Sprague, um, who's a English guy who lives in Austria. Um, and the team kind of they're involved um, and they keep an eye on us and like, on training camp they run everything but they're very much of the opinion you've got your own relationship with your coach we don't want to force anything upon you which is quite refreshing because last year we had to be coached by the team and I didn't I really think, see eye to eye I, and I think you get to sometimes get a conflict of interest with team coaches mm, because exactly they're firstly coaching for the team and secondly coaching for you and there are will be occasions when those don't pull in the same direction yeah especially at uh it's like at this level all my teammates i'm quite close to my teammates here i say 10 of us live in town so you get to know each other well but at the same time they are my competitors there's only x amount of world tour contracts on offer um and when you go to world tour i feel you're there you're paid to do a job um if your job is to get off after 100k then that's your job. Whereas at our level, we're, we're all kind of competing to be a little bit better to like attract, as we said before, attract that attention. Um, and if you're coached by a, like if you're coached by an individual away from the team, they understand that. Whereas if you're coached by the team as a whole, um, as you say, they're pulling in different ways sometimes. We're going to find out over the next decade if the junior ranks is the right place to spot talent. And my guess is going to, there's going to be some big hits and some big misses there. The one thing that I thought was fascinating was my Tour de l'Avenir, uh, which is the under-23 Tour de France. How reflective that was of where we all ended up in the pro ranks. So even down to the smallest... Um, Detail. So I, I went there with the GB team with uh, Eric Roussel, Andy Fenn, Tim Kenyuk, uh, Luke Rowe, a, a young Luke Rowe, myself, and maybe one more. Um, 
And so if you take us, Andy Fenn had a couple of top tens and he enjoyed a few years in the world tour and then, uh, then bowed out. Um, Luke Rowe was, was solid and that's where he is in the world tour. Um, he was young to be fair. Tim Kenyuk kind of didn't feature too much in the race, but I, I noticed that he was quite, um, he was very switched on and now he's one of the head coaches at Bahrain victorious. Um, the Eric Rousel was a good, like, again, like got round and enjoyed quite a long career on the UK scene. Um, and I wore the yellow jersey for a day, the green jersey for a day, was second in the prologue. And then this is the sort of next part of this story is the the winners and losers of that year's Tour de Lavenir. The prologue was Taylor Finney winning, me second, Michael Matthews third. And then Taylor crashed on stage two and I inherited the yellow jersey, and which you know, Taylor in his career, very good at time trials, also loves a crash. Um, the stage, the, the sprint stage battles were a fight between John Dagenkolb and Michael Matthews. And Matthews just about getting the better of uh, John in terms of the overall for the green jersey. And Mike Matthews has won a green jersey in the Tour de France. And you would say, um, as, a, as a sprinter, is has the edge on Don, John Dagenkolb. Well, I, I would say anyway. Talansky and Nairo Quintana were fighting for the GC win. And Quintana got the win on uh, in the end and again translate that into the pro ranks and Quintana's your Tour de France contender Talansky is very good but just not quite at the level of Quintana other than um, other than training per se which is pretty hard to avoid if you're in your line of work I mean how engaged are you with the other pieces of the jigsaw I mean We've sort of said that you're not regarding yourself primarily as a time trialist because you know, for perfectly sensible reasons, I think that that's probably quite a small box to get yourself into, particularly if you're not an 83 kilo, 530 watt monster. But things like engineering, aerodynamics, particularly psychology, you know, is this, are you, are you on top of, are you across all that as well? Or is that something you kind of tend to leave to the team or ignore for the moment or? Um. It depends. It depends to what levels we're talking. So I, in my opinion, aerodynamics, when I was junior, if you were aero and you cared about aero, you'd get so, you'd be on fire. Um, Whereas these days, if you don't have the access to a big budget, I feel all those cheap stroke free aero hacks that I was doing three years ago, everyone's doing them now. And if I can't get into a wind tunnel, I can't get that next step ahead, which I need. and I, I was chatting to UAE's uh, performance director the other day, just in town, and he was saying even someone like Gaviria was wind tunnel tested on, uh, sorry, velodrome aero tested on training camp. Um, Gaviria probably doesn't give a toss about time trials, but everyone in that world tour thing is doing it now. Um, whereas on Axion, I mean, it's no secret we don't have the budget to do it. So while I spend however many however many hours kind of taping over my bolt holes, I'm at the lead, et cetera, et cetera, I can't get into a wind tunnel or onto a velodrome um, for reasonable money. 
And it's even things like, you know, you see those, the bars, which numerous British companies put out that well over a thousand pounds. Um, like that's a significant percentage of my annual salary, a very significant percentage. So things like aerodynamics, I feel unless you've got the backing, whether it's private or team, um, it's difficult now to be ahead of the game. Kind of things like psychology, I've actually started working with a, like a sports psychologist this past winter, just because I struggled in France a lot last year. And little things have started bringing in, um, which sounds so simple, but when you put them into effect, um, like in your training, or well, I haven't raced yet, but in your training, it makes that difference. And then things like diet, etc. Um, I, I very much believe nobody's perfect, but if you kind of live on the whole 80%, 20% balance or 85, 15, whatever, um, within 85%, you eat well and you live well, 15%, you have a life. That's a good, a good way of, again, staying sane. Yeah. Well, the basis that most people aren't getting it right 80% of the time. So if you get it right yeah it's, i've, I've yeah. known a lot of people who lived kind of 100 percent, zero percent but they could only do it for three weeks at a time yeah. and then they would go from 100 percent, zero percent to zero percent 100 percent for another two weeks and so yeah. on yeah yeah and it's aero it frustrates me a little bit because i'm i'm very much say i've grown up on the club tt scene um i'm always kind of i was always ahead of it to a degree and now I'm at the level where, so this Algarve TT I'm going to be doing is 20K. And I, I'm on arguably the, one of the top three fastest bikes in the world, but I haven't been wind tunnel tested. And I know in my head I'm giving watts away, but the only other way of doing it is kind of investing, I don't know, what's a wind tunnel session, 800 pounds, whatever. Yeah, um, two, two, 200, 300 pounds an hour would do it, but... Still, you need two or three hours, so yeah, you're looking at you're looking at a thousand pounds basically, aren't you? Because yeah. you're probably going to have to come back to the UK to do it, and um, and we might have two TTs in a year that could be like for 30k's worth of time trialing. Um, and it's just balancing that up. Like, if I was world tour, I'd do it, but at the minute, I just can't afford it, and that it kind of frustrates me. Well, it does frustrate me a lot. I've already mentioned the heritage of Joe's team, Hagen's Berman Axiom. It was set up in the late 2000s specifically as a development team for under-23 riders by Axel Merckx, the former pro and the son of the legendary Eddie Merckx. It has been very, very successful. It's probably produced more World Tour riders than any other team, something that Joe is very well aware of. In fact, he's reminded of it on a daily basis. On the video link for this call, which unfortunately you can't see, he showed me the sleeve of his team shirt. On video, um, I'm just showing you this little 39 on our side. That says 39 World Tour riders, and that's you how need, many You, you need to get them to update their website, because there's 36 on the website, because I checked before I talked to you. Nah, but 39. 30, 39. 39 World Tour riders in the last 12 or 13 years for the team, which, yeah, I mean, I'm, the, the, three, the three I made a note of were Alex Dice, Taylor Finney, and Ben King were the first three I noticed on the list. Teo. And there's a lot more. Teo, Teo yeah. Yeah. He's, he's done a bit this last few months. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done okay. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Give him he's up. got a new, he's got a new coloured, uh, new coloured jersey in his wardrobe. So. <laughs> <laughs> that must, be, that must be the kind of thing that, from your point of view, is really inspiring. Because he's not in his, what is he, twenty five, twenty four. He's not, so. he's not that far ahead of you. No, and the thing with Teo is he didn't go into that race expecting to win it. Um, and if you'd have said before who's going to win the Giro, Teo probably wouldn't have been in the top twenty. I don't know, twenty five. Um, and but he's obviously talented 
and he's kind of take you've got to take your opportunities again um will he be in the same boat to win a Giro this year who knows but I mean between Teo and Jai Hindley who were kind of odds on fighting for the Giro you wouldn't have said at the start of the season no way would you have said that those two are going to be um like level on time going into the final stage um, or even in first and second, no. one time never happens. I mean, it, was, it was an odd season, but even so, um, yeah. because it's not—it's not like none of the other bike riders turned up. Exactly, and there, was was, a, there was there was a feel there. I remember watching it. I'd already signed, so I signed late for Axion. It was like mid October, I think, or just—I don't know, like start of October. But it's kind of the week before or two weeks before the Giro finished, um, and I remember watching the final TT on TV at my kitchen at home, watching Teo win it. And I was like, ah, oh, wow, like just incredible. Um, and the thing is with his team, so we was at a training camp last week when Stoyven won San Remo. Um, he's also like team alumni. Um, so there's a, yeah, we've got a fair few guys who, there's good footsteps to be following. So what, why is, why does the team do that? What is it about the team that manages to, is it, you know, is it like Oxford or Cambridge who produce kind of very successful alumni, but they do that for the most part by actually only letting the best in to begin with? You know, is is that how this is? This is Axel Merckx's team, um, and it's been around for a while. And what's he doing that produces thirty nine World Tour bike riders in twelve years? Um, well, I, I suppose that is the start of it. You you can't just walk onto the team. Um, I mean, they're not going to sign any old mug. Um, just they're, they're not just going to, I don't know, pick 15th place on a start. Let's say, right, I'm signing him. A lot goes into it. Um, but that's, again, that's the same with any, any team. Um, but the environment around that squad, which Axel has created over the years, um, it kind of it sets its own tone, I think, and the level sets itself. Um, so on training camp, there was a couple of boys who had been on the team for the last three years, and they were like, right this is what this is how we do it like we have fun when it's time to have fun but when we're training we train um i think the kind of the environment which axel has created over the last decade kind of speaks for itself and you join axion and you're like bloody hell if i wasn't already motivated um look i've kind of the ball's completely in my court now because if you can't go pro out of axion um you're not good enough it's it's that simple because the the riders I've kicked out over the years, not kicked out, that's the wrong phrase. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, produced, shall we say. Produced over the years. Um, that was, yeah, that was bad slang. The riders <laughs> I've produced over the years, um, it's just, say, 39 World Tour riders, however many Pro Conti riders. Um, it's just, I, I honestly think it is, again, this is me sounding horribly cliche, it's the environment and as much yeah. off the bike as it is on the bike. The, the mentality in that team is like work hard play hard and that, that's what that's what we did back in uh, 2009 we didn't have the history of the team to know that we were in such a great place to to go pro all that we knew back then is two riders would go to Radio Shack and that was that was it those riders in that team it'd be easy for them to go the other way and go you know what like I'm here I've made it I've made it into the launch pad for the world tour and it'd be easier for some of them then to just back off thinking it's job done but it sounds like they they know that they're they're very close but they still need to put the work in to get there but it's nice that 
they all um, sound like they like want to enjoy the process as well, which I think is so important. Still to this day, the most fun year of my career was that year in Trek Livestrong. Like I just, I loved it. I loved going to races. I loved racing. I loved the lifestyle. Um, I loved the fact that we were underdogs. It was, it was brilliant. And then you, you sort of get to the world tour, and it's, it's a different kind of fun. It's far more serious. The racing's far harder, um, and it's, yeah, it is different. And that's why that was the most fun year of my career. So I, I mean, I'm glad Joe's getting to experience this. Um, and it's nice that those boys know. I mean, those guys that are three years deep into the team probably know that it's it's kind of crunch time for them. Like they need to have a very good year, and um, but it's very cool that they like coming back to what we we're talking about with your teammates being your competitors. It's cool that they say to the guys just joining the team, "This is how we do things. We work hard, and when it's time to, we play hard." So. Um, but I think it's worth noting when I was when I was there, like we had a we had a very good year. I I would um, I think to date it's still the most successful year in terms of the amount of riders that then moved on. Um, we had five went to World Tour and one went to Pro Conti, and Justin Williams was a part of that as well. And he's he's forged his own path and is um, quite the pioneer now in in the cycling world and is doing extremely well and is like very inspirational five of us went well tour because five of us just did well and so i would imagine within the team that they've they've kind of said there is no there's no limit to the amount of you that can go there's no and they're not tied to a team anymore like they used to be tied to radio shack so for a t- for the first half of my year, it was like, oh, who's going to get the Radio Shack spots? But in the end, it was like, oh, Taylor and Taylor's going to get the stagiaire and one other, I think Jesse. But actually, they're going to take Ben King and Jesse. And then BMC are going to take Tim Rowe and Taylor. Sky are going to take Alex. And Team, team Type 1 are going to take the other Ben King. But for the year before, they had Bjorn Sealander and Sam Bewley went to Radio Shack. And obviously, Sam is now at the and is a sort of stalwart of the team. I mean, I guess it's kind of your, your um, Ivy League or your Oxford or Cambridge of, of cycling development teams. The, um, the last year, as, as kind of for someone who's at a kind of such a pivotal point in your career, COVID-19 last year and this year must have been disruptive. Um, that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so last year I was, uh, I think I raced once before lockdown in France. Um, then I went home until mid-July. And the thing is, we never knew when we were going to get started again. So it was like, you go when I first left, it was like, oh, I'll see you in two weeks, guys. And I was just training as per usual. And then a month later, you're like, oh, well, we're not starting until July. And then a week later, it was like, oh, we're not starting until August. Um, and there was like such a limbo period. You didn't know what to do training wise or not training wise. In hindsight, if I knew what I did, I'd have had a mini off season right at the start, like just a week or 10 days. Um, and then I came back, the season was so short, like ours was 
August to September, basically. So two months. Um, and then I got ill halfway through it and took 10 days off the bike. And once you, if you get ill in a normal season, like fine, you've got another six months. Um, getting ill where I did last year, it was like day done, season done. Um, so just yeah. in terms of getting yourself in the shop window. Yeah, I mean, I did. Really but, I mean, I'm, I'm really upfront and I know last year was awful. Like my results, well, they do speak for themselves. They were bad. Um, I probably raced eight times last year, seven times. Um, and it was just, apart from my first my first race in March, I rode really strongly. Um, we won it. I got fifth. We got seventh, ninth. We, we just cleaned up. Um, come back in, in August, it was like, we, we, we're just doing crits. I'm not a crit rider. So I was just like, I don't know, riding on the front, getting the brake back, calling it a day, leaving it to the sprinters. Um, and it was just a lack of, it was kind of a lack of opportunities. And it was, it was a weird, weird racing. We saw it on the TV with the pros, um, but some guys were absolutely flying, but only flying for like a day. And then some guys just weren't quite up to pace. And then I was kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, it was just a strange time. I think just because nobody really knew some people came out of lockdown better than others, I suppose. Because it, it's it's that way you can't you can't plan for it. And yeah. so much of performance, if you're going to perform, it's got to do with when, what event you're doing, when you're going to be doing it. And it, it disrupts, it just pulls the rug from under, from under absolutely everything. And motivation-wise as well. Like I'm not the only one who said this. Um, like Even a lot of my American teammates this year who I've only just met, they were saying... There were days in lockdown, say like April, May. You're like, why the hell am I doing this? Like, I think everyone kind of had that thing in whatever they did in life. Um, but there was a lot of guys who, who I was racing in March in France, just never came back and then stopped racing. Um, I think because it was, it made everyone pause and take a look at, like, take a step back, kind of thing. Um, and it was just, it was, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, was, it kind of seemed telling to me that. It seemed telling to me that when the season did kind of kick off again, the guys who were doing well were all kind of Northern Europeans, either Belgian and, and, and Dutch, who hadn't who'd been able to go outside. Because mm. all the pros in Andorra were doing kind of five-hour, trying to do five-hour turbo trainer days in one-bed apartments up a mountain in Andorra. Um, yeah, and they were all going to... crazy because they literally couldn't go outside. That's enough to crack um, anyone, isn't it? I don't know how anyone sets about doing that, even even with Zwift or a mountain view or what the hell else you've got. It's uh, I know guys who were doing like literally four and five hours in a one bed flat. Yeah, it's um, like this. Uh, just before I moved here, actually, I had a problem with my bike, which meant I was on uh, I was on the turbo for two weeks. And I think I did a twenty five hour week on the turbo, including three six hour rides. And I have no clue how I did it. Like this, this is a really big. This is just me bragging. Like. I'm so proud of it, but I have no clue how I did it either. <laughs> <laughs> that on are you doing that on Zwift or are you just um, looking at the numbers? Um I was I was Zwift I was actually zoomed some guys. Um oh, okay. so we almost had like a club run on Zwift. Um yeah, I mean it was it's interesting. Doing six hours on a turbo is is special for anyone. And then there was one guy I was with, he was like, Oh yeah, I'm doing twenty four hours on turbo. I was like Oh, rather you than me, eh? Talking to Joe and Alex really brought home to me just how much of a rider's career can be mapped out in just a few early years. In an ideal world, that probably wouldn't be so critical. 
But clearly, there's a relatively small window in which you have the opportunity to step everything up from your fitness to your experience, and from your Palmares to your paycheck. But there's also an awful lot that you can't control, like what sort of riders the teams are looking for. To that extent, you can only make some of your own luck. The rest of it is completely out of your hands. I'm very much hoping Joe gets the chance to follow in the tire tracks of some of the other Axian old boys like Tara Ging and Hart, Taylor Finney, and of course, Alex Dyson. Maybe before he's done, we'll see Joe taking a grand tour stage or two as well. Thanks very much to Joe and Alex for talking to me, and thanks to you for listening. As always, my gratitude to Cycling Weekly for their support. If you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. It really helps people find us. It'd be great if you could like and subscribe to Faster as well. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Hutch if you want to get in touch. And if you'd like to read the book that inspired the podcast, it's also called Faster. It's also by me and it's available from places that sell books. Faster is produced, mixed and edited by Tom Wally and the team at Strip Media. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 